hey, Spook Squad listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the podcast after our little week off last week. Uh, my name is Dan. And I'm Allie. Welcome back, Allie. I feel like it has been too long since you and I have done an episode together. It has been, but keep in mind, we have a lot of fun stuff planned for future episodes together that will be happening soon. Totally, totally true. And I am very, very excited about that. But you know what, Allie? I'm excited about today's episode, too. Me, too. We have some fun stuff to talk about in this one. Oh, yeah. Plus getting real about some genuine fears for the first time on the podcast. Think you're ready for that? I think so. I guess we'll find out. (laughs) I guess we will. Uh, It's going to be fun, I promise, because today we are venturing into the wilderness for naturalistic horror. Yes, and even though I actually have a lot of feelings on this and a lot to say about it, I actually hadn't been turned on to this term before you started talking to me about it this week. Honestly, uh, me neither. I think this is a good time to shout out where I got this terminology. I've brought him up a bit on here before, but friend of the podcast, Brian Finelli, great guy, poet, writer. Uh, he has a review up for Alexander Aja's Crawl on this website that he contributes to called Horror Homeroom. Definitely check that out, folks. Great stuff over there. Uh, anyway, I actually came across this term, term naturalistic horror, in Brian's review, and I loved it, and it influenced a lot of the way that we kind of wanted to approach this week's episode, actually. I'm definitely a fan of the term, and we'll get into why in a minute, but can I read this snippet from the review you saved? Please do. Okay, so Brian writes, Like other naturalistic creature features, Crawl shows how indifferent and punishing the universe can be. Just when you think Haley and Dave are safe, another gator or two shows up, or the hurricane water surged deeper into the home, busting through windows with brute force. Mm-hmm. In a horror homeroom article from 2015 on Shark Horror, Don Keatley cites critic Michael Fuchs as a means to define naturalistic horror. This definition can also apply to Aja's film in that it states naturalistic horror puts us on the terrain of the shark, or in this case, the gators. In a world relatively indifferent to humans, except as food, in which the good guys don't necessarily come out on top, or even alive, and death is random. To survive, it's either kill or be killed. Yeah, that's the bit that I thought perfectly summed up why I wanted to talk about this a bit before diving into Crawl, for sure. But what about that quote stuck out to you? Well... Originally, when we were talking about how to approach this episode, as you know, I suggested we talk about creature features in general. Right. We actually had a few ideas related to that. I feel like we still might do something with that in the future. Mm -hmm. But for this episode, the reason that I like that quote is because it narrows the spectrum of the type of creature feature we're talking about here. Yes. And that makes it easier and more interesting to examine and discuss. Because I realized we could get so lost if we made it creature features in general. That's a really good point. We could be talking about completely different types of movies and get way off topic. Like, does Godzilla count? Cloverfield? Alien? Predator? Exactly. That's exactly it. Even Tremors, which we watched recently, Mm -hmm. just the other night, right? Yeah. I realized that's not quite what we're talking about today either. 
So I like that the quote makes it clear that there's a distinction in the type of films we're going to talk about today. True, and in my own case, I'm kind of excited to examine why they scare us and maybe get into some theory. We'll see. Definitely, but wait, have we made it clear enough what the episode is actually about? I I think we've kind of been dancing around it, actually. Do you want to make it more clear for our dear listeners? Yes, good idea. So today... We are going to be talking about naturalistic creature features, that is, films that pit humans against a cruel, unforgiving force of nature, particularly embodied in animals. And we're going to be talking about that because we saw Alexandra Aja's Crawl this week, and it is definitely one of those movies. Perfectly put, Allie. I am so glad you did that. Okay, so now that we've got sort of setting the stage of this thing up, like, how should we dive into it from here? Well, how about we talk a little bit about our relationship to this genre, and maybe some films that fit inside it, what we think works about them, stuff like that? I I like that a lot, specifically because one of the things about this episode that is so interesting to me is the fact that we have very different relationships with this genre, actually. Yes. Yes, we do. I would say that's fair. So... Maybe I'll start off, since I basically already expressed this on our Summer Horror Roundup episode. Uh, Actually, I said this when I was talking about Crawl, so I guess it comes back full circle, because this is actually one of the types of horror movies that I have never personally been able to get into. And it's a shame, because I'm usually so open-minded with horror and just kind of exposed myself to a lot of different stuff, but ever since I was little, the idea of, like, uh, animal attack horror just never really did anything for me, as... As, you know, I said in the past, for me, it's it's the effects. It's just really hard for me to get invested in or just be scared of or even care about, like, some giant CGI shark or something. It just never feels real to me, and I can't get invested. What about Jaws? You know, I am so embarrassed saying this, but I must be one of the few people on the planet who just... Jaws just missed me, you know? I didn't see it when I was a kid because I wasn't allowed, and for whatever reason, by the time I saw it, I just... I wasn't into it. Now, like, today, I respect that film a lot for the way it was filmed and the effects for the time and everything like that. I totally get it, and especially considering what I'm talking about with CGI, I really respect what Spielberg did, but even still, then, you know... It still just doesn't do it for you? Yeah, exactly. It just, it still doesn't do it for me. Well... Are you afraid of animals or nature or anything like that? See, I, I'm actually really not. I have plenty of fears and anxieties. I have plenty of those. But somehow, those really aren't among them. Now, you, however... <laughs> yes. You have a slightly different relationship with nature in general than I do. Is that fair to say? Definitely fair to say. Could you talk about that a little bit? I grew up in the woods. Not literally, I lived in a home, but it was in a very woodsy, rural area. Extremely. In elementary school, one of the annual programs we would have put on for us was bear safety, where we would go over bear drills and what to do if we encounter a bear. A bear drill. So the same way that like I... Everyone had fire drills. You also had bear drills. Yes. In addition to fire drills, I had bear drills. Can I ask, did you ever, was there ever a case where the bear drill was like, oh, thank goodness we did that because there's a bear in the playground or whatever? Absolutely. That happened multiple times. Jeez. Okay. So 
a lot different than my reality, again, which is precisely why we have these different perspectives, like I'm saying. And, you know, who knows? Maybe that's part of why it works for you more. But even beyond that, you've just got a different relationship with these movies than I do because you've watched them since you were younger, right? I have. Absolutely. My father was a big fan of horror. Not... Mm -hmm. Not the refined kind of horror. Shout out to Joe, by the way. Yes. Yes, Joe. Good dad, good horror fan. Mm -hmm. He was very into anything that would play on the sci-fi channel when I was growing up. Which is a lot of creature feature stuff. A lot. Anaconda, Lake Placid. Yeah. Anything, really. So I I have a soft spot for them because it felt very real to me. I grew up by a lot of wildlife, and it was a real possibility that something could attack. Yeah, and uh, listen, I totally get that. And personally, I really dig that we have different perspectives on the genre because not everything works for everyone, and I totally get that. And also because you can identify certain aspects of the genre that maybe speak to something real and effective for you when I'm coming from it. I'm, I'm a bit of an outsider, I guess, in this perspective. Right, and... Both of us have watched a bunch of movies that fall into this category over the past couple of years, and I'd say there are a handful that have been effective even for you. And you would be right to say that. So maybe we could talk about what worked about those films for you? Yes, and I think we should dive into that right after I get into my little bit of theory, because I think it'll add a bit of context to our discussions. Sure, go for it. Okay, well... I got this from a paper called Domesticating Nature by Mayako Murai, uh, who seems awesome. In any case, uh, she writes, quote, One of the recurring themes in contemporary visual art is the reconsideration of human beings' relationships with wild animals, a motif central to many folk and fairy tales across different cultures. In some of these tales, human characters who demonstrate respect or compassion towards wild animals are rewarded in the end as in the tales featuring grateful animal motif. In others, people's lives are threatened by predatory animals, as in various versions of Little Red Riding Hood. In either case, these tales demonstrate the classic patterns of relationship between humans and other animals sharing the earth and its natural resources. With advancing industrialization, however, people have become more and more disconnected from the natural environment and the animals in it which has reduced wild animals in fairy tales to functional props symbolizing humanity's other. Wow. There is a bit to unpack there. Totally. So let's unpack it a little bit. Why not? Can you tell that we were both English majors? Yeah, exactly. I know. (laughs) It's so obvious in moments like this. But anyway, (laughs) so Mariah used what she was saying here to analyze a series of naturalistic photographs, but it can just as easily be applied to film or literature, in my opinion. For our purposes, I guess we're mainly talking about the latter kind of nature story, the ones Mariah compares to Little Red Riding Hood, in that they are portraying animals as predatory. But... Ali, what do you make out of the fairy tale context, as well as the idea of humanitary, excuse me, humanity being the quote-unquote other? I definitely like it, especially the bit that addresses the changing environment and the need to compete for natural resources, because that's true, obviously, and I guess it's subtly underlying all of these films in a way. It's funny, I don't think that a single one of the movies we're going to talk about 
addresses that or even portrays these struggles that way. But that part still rings true for me. Good point. Uh, If anything, the portrayal is more akin to the trope of, like, the clueless people stumble into nature where they don't belong and end up in over their heads kind of thing. I guess. But sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it literally is just wrong place, wrong time. Mm -hmm. Or just the random brutality of nature. To me, that maybe makes it even scarier and even more sad. You know... I'm definitely going to agree with you there, because if there's anything that works about this for me, it's that, you know? And this is even coming from my somewhat sheltered perspective here, but here's how I see it. Depending on where you live, it can be easy to forget about precisely that, the power of nature, the random brutality of it sometimes, and how we shelter ourselves. But we're way more helpless than we like to think when we're out in nature, and in that environment, we're out on our own, you know? Yeah, exactly. So that works for you. It does. When I can feel that from a movie, that works for me. Like, we'll get to this in a little bit, but I thought it was interesting and fitting that Crawl kind of pairs a disaster movie with the naturalistic creature feature. Two of my biggest fears. Mm Mm-hmm. In that way, it's all about the forces of nature, and the whole metaphor or point of it all kind of becomes even more clear. I would say so. But to get back to the theory for a moment, that part at the end that talks about how humanity is disconnected from nature and animals, and that leading to the otherness in these stories, Mm -hmm. I love that because, as you know, I am always the person reminding people that there are mountain lions in North America. Which is true. (laughs) And how dangerous they are, which it seems like a lot of people don't know, and... I know it's just one example, but I feel like it's the perfect example to illustrate just how unaware some people are to our relationship with nature. Right. Which is sometimes fragile, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm genuinely shocked at the number of people who tell me they don't know what to do if they see a bear. (sighs) I feel like people always give different answers because you have to do different things for different types of bears. And perhaps folks don't always know that. Even then, it's still a lot of people. Okay, yeah. Sure, maybe that was my life for a while, and it's not how everyone lived. But still, we have disconnected ourselves from nature so much in some ways that we think of animals as the other. But that's what I love about this quote and these films in some ways. In these environments, in nature, humanity really is the other. And that's what leads to so much of the fear in these films. Absolutely. Also, throw in the fact that so many of these movies seem to revolve around our protagonists being stuck in some way, and you only enhance that feeling of otherness. I know you're not really a fan of them, but shark movies are a really good example of films in this genre that use that trope pretty explicitly. Oh, definitely. And again, you know, part of it... That part of it tends to work for me. It's the vastness of the ocean, you know? Like, forget it. With or without a boat, it's horrifying to think about that. I guess when it comes to without, we'd be talking about a film like Open Water, right? Mm Mm-hmm. About that couple who get stranded at sea after a scuba diving trip or something and need to find their way back. Yes, exactly. That is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Well, what did you think of that one? Well... Like I said, that works for me because the main quote-unquote enemy here isn't a shark or even sharks in general. I mean, 
that comes up, but it's really just them against the elements. It's more of a general story of survival, and the sharks and other creatures are just kind of an aspect of that. So when we get into movies like The Reef or 47 Meters Down... It's just not for me. I don't think I've even seen either one of them completely, but again, like lots of CGI and just not for me. (laughs) So then I'm guessing something like The Meg is definitely out of the question for you? The Meg. Yes, uh, it is. (laughs) For people who don't remember... That movie came out last year, I think 2018, and it was the uh, Jason Statham giant shark movie that looked ridiculous. I feel like that's close to a whole other category of film almost, the like super animal or giant animal. That's like almost more of a traditional creature feature in a way. True, but there are a couple of films that fit into that category that I think we can still discuss for this episode that pretty much count. Such as? Well... Let's not forget that Alexandra Aja has actually done something like this before Mm. when he remade Joe Dante's Piranha as Piranha 3D in 2010. I do remember that. It was the uh, it was giant piranhas in that one. Right. Like, see, this is another example. I think Mm. I saw that film years ago and I don't remember it that well. I actually saw it more recently than you, I think. And. I don't remember if they were giant piranhas. I know that they were ancient piranhas. Yeah, like prehistoric, yeah, prehistoric piranhas. I remember that too. Something about them was unusual. They, or, they were extra vicious? Extra vicious, something. Or like, I think maybe it was their pack mentality? It. Either way, I feel like it uses that super animal trope or whatever, and it, it's adjacent to being that type of film but it still kind of falls within the realm of naturalistic horror technically i think regardless it it was fun well i get that and you know what i'm not gonna try and argue that in general like a giant killer animal or a super animal movie like isn't fun to watch on some level because i know that they are i'm just gonna say that i'm picky about how it's done Right, But I know it's possible to do it in a satisfying way because of a certain movie. Are you going to talk about Boar? Oh, Allie, you know I'm going to talk about Boar. Let's do that because I like Boar a lot too. So for those of you who don't know, Boar is an Australian horror film uh, released around 2017 but recently became more available after being released on Shudder, which is where we saw it. This film really impressed me in a bunch of ways. Shout out to Shudder. Oh yeah, definitely. Shout out to Shudder. First and foremost, let's give credit to the effects team from a company called Slaughter FX, who just did an incredible job on this movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. They killed it. So let's just be brief. Boar is a film that takes place on the Australian outback. It's about a giant wild boar that kills people. So... Yeah, there's an inherent ridiculousness to it, but the film has a sense of humor and self-awareness to it that really goes a long way in a film like this. The characters are all pretty likable and surprisingly dynamic. You've got Bill Mosley in a role here, John Jarrett from the Wolf Creek series in a great protagonistic role for once, Mm -hmm. but the real show stealer is Nathan Jones, former WWE wrestler and 
genuine Australian giant. Yes, this man, she's not kidding. This dude is just shy of seven feet tall and genuinely built like a mountain. He is just this massive human, and it's truly hilarious to watch him pick up other human beings in this film as if they were just absolutely nothing. People are actually just ragdolls in his hands. It's incredible. But it's not them that makes boar so special. It's, well... It's the boar. It's the boar. What makes the boar so special, Dan? Well, less slaughter FX, because while there is some CGI in this film, there is a stunning, and I mean surprising, amount of practical effects used in this film. And that means props, makeup, fake blood, all that stuff. So yes, the injuries are more visceral and effective as usual, but for boar itself, for the boar... They used a model or a huge prop or animal tro- animatronics or a combination thereof, and dude, the effect is unlike any other creature feature of this nature that comes to mind for me. It's most noticeable with the mouth, I think, which is hugely important because that's a big part of how it attacks, obviously. Mm-hmm. There are multiple scenes where the boar is chomping at someone or standing over them and... It's extremely clear that it's not CGI. Yes. You can just tell that you're really looking at something tangible, and that increases the effectiveness of those attack scenes by a lot. This film really just makes me feel the tension in a way that's much more real than, like, during these sequences, I mean. It just feels more real. It's just like a whole different type of film, almost, because of that. It's just a totally different feeling. Well, just think about it as an actor. Don't get me wrong, I see actors do really well with this type of stuff, but it's the difference between X scared of this tennis ball and a stick and later it will look awesome and okay, you're wrestling and punching at this giant model which makes you look puny. Yeah, that makes all the difference for me. It really, really does. Add the big, open, already scary Australian outback setting. And you've got the perfect recipe that we've been talking about for these types of films. Yeah, the outback is really scary to me. Forget all the animals out there. Like, how do you even know where you are? It's just open nothing for miles and miles. That's scary to me. Definitely. Since we're kind of on the subject of, like, the super powerful animal or whatever, the super powerful animal, like, let's talk about, what about Cujo? Does that count? And if so, how do you feel about it? Cujo definitely counts, even though it uses weird techniques to get where it's going. Do you mean the fact that Cujo starts killing people because he gets bitten by a bat? That's exactly what I mean. I always thought it was implied that he got, like, rabies or something from the bat. I I thought that too, but like we often say with this kind of stuff, I think that's not really what matters anyway, so much as everything that comes after. True. But Cujo continues to check all these boxes that we keep talking about. In this case, they used actual dogs to play Cujo, because obviously this was before CGI dogs. Mm -hmm, And thank goodness. But the effect holds up for sure. And even though they're not trapped in nature necessarily, there is a very long sequence in which our characters are trapped. And it really seems to be a running theme now that we examine it this way. Like I said, I know they're not in nature necessarily in this one, but the theme is the same. Being trapped in one location really leaves you at the mercy of nature, 
And reminds you of how helpless you are. Absolutely. Fun fact, I believe that the car in Cujo that they were hiding in was made out of tin, which is why it made such loud, effective noises when Cujo attacked it, and also why it got dented so easily, which is a really, really awesome and creative effect. Definitely. Uh, So, uh, should we start getting into Crawl here, or do we need to talk about, like, the birds and stuff? (laughs) Uh... I don't think we really need to talk about the birds, but there is one more film that I want to bring up before we get into Crawl. Ooh, I think I know what it is, too. I think you do. All right, go ahead. Tell us. Backcountry. All right, yes. Let me just say that this film does a lot of what we've explained already works in these films, but its contribution to the genre, in my opinion, is the character development that is done before anything scary happens at all. This film revolves around a couple that feels very real, which is fitting because it's based on an actual incident. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's predictable that I was so affected by this movie because, okay, it's about a bear attack. Right. But still, you agree with me, right? This one is next level. Yes, I agree with you. And the scene that you are talking about, the bear attack scene... That was the first thing that you said you had to show me after seeing the film because it was just so brutal and so effective and it had really made an impact on you. It really did. It's one of the scariest things I've ever seen. And the scene itself, it really is terrifying because it takes place while they're inside the tent and they can hear the bear outside and it eventually attacks them inside of it, which is very disorienting because you can't see it all at once and you can't really hide anywhere or defend yourself and it's... It's very clever because you only show a little bit of the bear attacking at once. So the scene by itself, it works and it is effective. But with the context of their relationship, it's totally, totally crushing. Yes, it still gets to me. I think with this film, and this is another reason I wanted to bring it up before talking about Crawl, the use of gore in this film is really real and unflinching. It's brutal, but also used sparingly in some ways. Like, the final view of the body. Yeah, holy shit. Like, without even spoiling anything, just like, dude, holy shit. Exactly. But this is what we always talk about when it's used that way, so deliberately like that. It creates these really unforgettable moments and images that make the risk feel very real and drives home this point about clashing with nature even more strongly. I completely agree, and you're totally right, because that is the perfect transition to talking about Crawl, which also had some brutal moments. See? It makes sense. It absolutely does. All right, uh, let's get into it. So Crawl, coming from Alexander Ajad, director of Attention and the Hills Have Eyes remake, produced by the horror legend Sam Raimi. This film is, that is, after talking so much about the genre and some other films within it, what does Crawl have to offer us? Well, what immediately comes to mind for me as far as what sets this film apart is, well, first, the narrative backdrop of the father and daughter relationship, their complicated relationship, and how they use that as fuel to survive. No question. But also, I would say, like we brought up earlier, it's the combination of this sort of creature feature with the hurricane, the natural disaster setting. So that mainly confines them to one house, which gives the movie a very interesting setting, and the setup for multiple interesting scenarios and ways to frame shots. Yeah, in the craziest ways, I felt like this movie almost felt like a like sneaking around the house to escape the killer type film, like seriously akin to don't breathe or something but like with alligators does that make sense it does make sense because 
so much of this film is dependent on these elaborate set pieces of the flooded home and finding ways to hide within them, which frankly, I loved. The house flooding was great for a lot of reasons. I mean, not only did it look great, but it completely ups the tension because now you can't just wait them out. The dynamic of the house is constantly changing. And changing in a way which is beneficial for the alligators. Exactly. But but also, the flooding of the house is also our way of kind of assessing the passage of time in the film as well, which is also genius because when they start out in the basement, you can see the floor clearly. And as time goes by, it floods more and more, right? To the point where breathing might start to become a real problem for our protagonists at some point soon. And again, it reinvents these sets. Like, yes, it mainly takes place in one location, but that location changes drastically when stuff is literally floating around and water is pouring in. Yeah, it becomes a game of, like, jumping from one floating object to the next in a desperate quest for safety, and it's really amusing and smart that it takes place in a house because it also grounds it in a semi-relatable way or setting, kind of. But even the sequences outside... I definitely want to talk about that a little because the way they were filmed made them feel extremely real. Yeah. I loved seeing the cars start floating away. (laughs) I can't imagine those flood sequences were easy to film because how could it be when that much water is involved? Right. But it looks really, really good and gives the film that other element of tension it needs to drive it forward. Exactly. It's like I said about open water earlier. It's about survival, and the alligators are just an aspect of that. It's person versus, It's like the person versus nature theme, like we were saying. True, but we should say that in this film, there may be a bit more of an aspect than even the sharks in open water. Yeah, good point. This is definitely an alligator movie, no question. Big time. Well, let me just ask. How did it work for you as someone who isn't usually a fan of this stuff? I was pleasantly surprised, especially by the CGI, which, as you know, I was very skeptical of. I mean, like, the thing looks pretty good overall, and I did feel the tension of those things in the room, despite the fact that they were CGI, so that's already a success in my book, because that doesn't usually happen for me. And the gore, like I was saying before, because it's Alexandra Aja, you know he knows how to do this, yeah. and it works. Yeah. Watching people tourniquet wounds in this feels brutal, and there are a couple moments where the bites are very effective and very scary. Agreed. It's used to pretty effective ends to make the threat feel real, but how did you feel about the handful of random people who just kind of show up to get killed in this film? I have mixed feelings. Like, in some ways, it feels very obvious that certain characters just show up to pad the body count of the film. Mm which is a little annoying. But the film kind of makes it count in that one instance by bringing the boat as an important device later in the film. True, I forgot about that, actually. (laughs) But yeah, I don't know. I can kind of understand that maybe some people want like more gator kills, but ironically, I almost feel like this film would have been more tense without those people showing up and without those kills. It would have enhanced the feeling of isolation, which I think would have made it scarier for me. Me too. I I guess the point here is, like, no one can help you or whatever, but, like, eh. That's how I feel about it. All the moments of, like, hiding, though, navigating the house, utilizing the environment to, like, trick or trap the gators or something, that was pretty awesome and effective, though. 
it's like we said, the film is kind of at its best when it's working with these elaborate set pieces with the flooding house. I agree. Uh, clever to make the lead a good swimmer, too. Explains a lot of the stuff about why she's able to navigate the environment the way she is. And why she even has a fighting chance. Totally. So, thoughts overall? Look, let me say this. When we saw this movie in theaters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when we saw this movie in theaters, it was us and it was a bunch of teenagers, essentially. Like us and high school kids. And you know what? It was the perfect audience to see it with because it worked. They jumped at the parts that were supposed to make you jump and they all seemed to feel tense and shocked at the right times and people were commenting and pretty obviously having a good time during it. So... I feel like that's basically what this film is supposed to do. I agree. Although I sometimes wished the film took itself a little less seriously. Mm. But it was a fun, intense ride, and that's kind of all I wanted it to be. In other words, it worked for what it was. Exactly. It's not breaking down genre doors or anything, but yeah, it worked. It checked a lot of the right boxes for me, despite the CGI. Uh, Allie, you want to rate this one? Sure. I'm going to give Crawl a light 6 out of 10. I love it. Your first rating. I know. First of many. Oh, definitely. All right. Well, that's it for us, folks. Thank you so much for listening. What did you think of Crawl? And how do you like naturalistic horror? Let us know on Twitter at SpookyGuyDan or at SpookSquadPod or talk to us on Instagram at SpookSquadPodcast or, you know, let's grab a beer and talk about it sometime. All right, from Spook Squad, this is Dan. And Allie. Signing out. (laughs) 